Remain standing and recite with me the Shema as is printed in your bulletins. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture passage for this morning is from the ninth chapter of John's gospel. In the ninth chapter of the gospel, there is detailed a story about a man born blind. The disciples see this man as they are walking with Jesus and they ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus says, neither. He is who he is so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must do the work of him who sent me. I am the light of the world. Then Jesus spits on the ground. He makes mud with his saliva and puts that mud on the eyes of the blind man. And picking up in verse seven, Jesus says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. That means sent. Then he went and washed and he came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying it is he and others were saying no, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man, but they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Well, as you can imagine, that does not settle things because then the Pharisees get involved and they want to know how this happened, how this healing happened and why it happened on the Sabbath. They ask the man, what do you say about Jesus? And he says, he's a prophet. Then the man's parents are called before the church leaders and they're asked, is this your son? How did this happen? And they say, he's of age which means he's at least 13, he can speak for himself. So they decide to call the man again and they ask, we know this man, Jesus is a sinner. What did he do to you? And the man says, I don't know that he's a sinner. I know that I was blind and now I see. I've already told you what he did. Why do you want to hear it again? Would you like to be his disciple? And as you can imagine, this didn't sit very well with the Pharisees. The Pharisees responded by driving him out of the church and the community. Then chapter 9 ends with these words. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and he is the one speaking with you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into the world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this, and they said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. This is the story of God for the people of God. Would you say with me? Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, I wrote this message for the confirmation class, and for the most part, I enjoyed remembering what it's like to be 14, for the most part. But I have that same invitation for you this morning, to remember what it's like to be in confirmation class. 
Something that we have in our house this year that's new is a tropical fish tank. And I am finding that it is one of my favorite screens to watch. There's a red Chinese fighter fish with these long flowing fins that look like scarves. And he comes to the surface periodically for air. And there's a sword tail that swims about mid-tank, patrolling the waters. And there's a yellow snail that has these really big eyes. He seems both curious and shy to me at the same time. And then there's this colorful guppy that really is the prettiest fish in the tank. Or I should say, he was the prettiest fish in the tank. This week, the other fish in the tank went after the guppy, and he didn't survive the attention. His remains eventually took a trip through our plumbing system. This all happened on Wednesday morning, and it reminded me of this Bible story that I was studying this week in John 9. It reminded me of the story that John tells about a man born blind who encounters Jesus, gains his sight, a really beautiful thing. But then he gets a lot of unwanted attention from all the people around him, from neighbors, from leaders of the church, from his parents, endless questions of how and why and where and what, like being nibbled to death. From my perspective, the story of the man born blind seems almost unbearable. Sometimes, it really is better not to see clearly. I can remember when one of my daughters was in elementary school, Alice, uh, she, when she was in elementary school, one day she came out at the end of the school day, and she told me that another girl stood outside her bathroom stall and held the door closed while she was in there and she couldn't get out. So I turned her around and I marched her right back into that school and I put her in the principal's office and the principal looked at her and she said, Alice, was that girl being mean to you? My daughter shook her head no while I stood behind her shaking my head yes. (laughs) And then the principal asked, was that girl making fun of you? And Alice shook her head no while I stood behind her silently shaking my head yes. Well, I certainly wasn't going to set her straight. Alice's way was an easier way to do fifth grade. And so I want this sermon in part to serve as a warning that seeing things clearly in this life is not always the easiest way. Associating yourself with Jesus is risky business. It is not by any means a guarantee that your life will be carefree or your life will be comfortable. So before the confirmands make a decision to take a stand with Jesus, I want to ask the man born blind a few questions. But there's one important thing that I want them to know about him, and I want you to know about him as well. I don't think he'll mention it because he's not one to brag about his achievements. He strikes me as a pretty humble guy. The man born blind confesses Jesus as Lord. He says, Lord, I do believe that you are the son of man, which is what John wants each of us to do. 
But it's not a common confession in John's gospel until after the resurrection. The man born blind gets it early. It's like skipping all of high school, going straight from eighth grade to graduation. He's a bright guy. And so I think we should consider him and ask him a few questions. Well, here's the first question that I have for him. The first question that I have for him is, what's with your parents? Both the disciples and the Pharisees suggest that all that's wrong with you is the fault of someone's sin, primarily your parents, maybe yours. So do you buy that? That your parents are to blame for your misfortune? Well, blaming is something that we do when we're stressed. When anxiety gets high, And some of my favorite people like to say, anxiety makes me stupid. One of my favorite biblical scholars, N.T. Wright, says that blaming pain or suffering on sin is a way of trying to hold on to God's justice. Or I might say, a way to try to control God's justice. Things may seem unfair, but they're not unfair because there's a secret sin to blame. And this works. This works as long as things are under control for me, meaning that I'm well off and well fed and healthy. But I want the comfort mans to know, and I want you to know, I'm old enough to know better. Suffering happens in this life for a stage or for a season. And the truth of the matter is that there are many reasons for pain, and some are simple but most are complicated and unseen. Most significant is the understanding that God is not afraid of pain and suffering. Whatever the reason for its existence in our lives, it becomes the raw working materials of the creator who continually makes all things new. The second question that I want to ask is about spit. Because I spend quite a bit of time out at the Little League fields, and I see guys spit on the ground all the time. But I've never seen a guy spit on the ground, get the dirt wet, and then take the mud and put it on someone's eyes. I suspect that that might get you thrown out of the game. I want to ask the man born blind, was that gross? Well, ancient people believed that the life essence or the spirit of a person was contained in the blood and the saliva. And we, while we don't quite see it that way, I do have sitting on my desk at home a 23andMe kit that suggests that I spit into a tube and mail it into them so that they can chart my DNA or my life essence. Hebrew prophets were known to speak in dramatic words, but they also communicated with their actions. Ezekiel in the Old Testament eats a scroll. He binds himself up with cords and he shaves his head. And Jeremiah walks around with a yoke like we would put on cattle around his neck. So the prophets really are your ancient drama club. And Jesus comes out of this tradition So what he does is not a spell, it's not an incantation, it's not a gross trick. His actions matter. 
When Jesus touches the ground, it's a powerful action. And we are to be be reminded of the second creation story in Genesis, where God forms humankind from the ground and breathes life in. If we were to ask the man born blind his name, because he's not named in the story, I suspect that he probably would say Adam. Because in Hebrew, Adam literally means dirt person. And that's exactly who he is. God has taken ground and this time puts the ground, puts the dirt on the man, recreating him. What Jesus is doing is new creation. And the new creation is about human perspective. That those who are blind are given new vision, given new sight. Which leads me to ask the question of the man What do you see? No one asks this question in the story. He's never seen before in his life. And the people around him are more interested in right and wrong, the how and the why, and they completely forget to ask the most important thing. What's it like to see now? What do you see? Suzanne Stabile tells a story about a teacher friend that she has that teaches visually impaired children at an elementary school. And every year, this teacher friend gives parents an experience during orientation night. She gives each parent a set of glasses that changes their vision to the vision of their child's and then has them walk around the classroom, the school, the playground like their children do, And she says every year, every time when the parents take the glasses off, there's not a dry eye in the room because they get it. They see the world as their child sees the world. Now, I'm guessing that in confirmation, you probably talk about the word sin. Sin is most often defined as things that we do or don't do that are wrong. Sometimes we define sin as missing the mark, like an archery term. And that's a Greek definition of sin, and it's a part of a faithful definition of sin, but here's what we miss. What we miss is the Hebrew definition of sin. For the Jews, sin shows up after creation, and it's about a break in relationship. It's a disregard for one of the covenants that God has put in place. So sin happens between us. It happens among us. It is not as self-focused as we make it because sin is always a break in relationship, a move that we make against another person, against God, or even against ourselves. When Jesus was asked what was the most important commandment, what was it that he said? He said what we said this morning before the sermon. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. When we prioritize right and wrong, how we act, our own actions over empathy and relationship, we are just a bunch of Pharisees who Jesus says really are blind. Another question that I want to ask is, do you mind being alone? 
Let me give you a list of people in this story who talk about the man born blind, but don't talk to him. Well, they certainly don't want to identify themselves with him. The disciples, his neighbors, people who saw him begging when he was blind, the Pharisees, and his family, his own parents. Do you remember when you were in eighth grade? <laughs> seeing someone in the cafeteria eating lunch by themselves. This man born blind is that guy. He's that girl. It seems like he has no one but Jesus. And the problem with Jesus is he's not around. In this particular story, he's in the first scene. Jesus is in the first scene of the story. And Jesus is in the last scene of John's story. But there's a huge space in between where Jesus appears to be absent. Fred Craddock says that this would have been a favorite story of early Christians. It would be like a favorite movie where you like it so much that you can see yourself in the movie. Craddock says that the first Christians would have wept, they would have laughed, they would have hoped when they heard the story about this man, a close associate of Jesus, who was given new sight and then thrown out of the synagogue, and that's like your church and your community center all wrapped up into one. The encouragement for us as Christians is that when it seems like you're all alone, When you get that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, that feeling no one wants to sit with me, that probably means that you see things differently from everyone else, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. John wants us to know that this happens to those who see the Messiah for who he is, Lord. And when you let Jesus' principles direct your life, That's called seeing things clearly, but it's probably not going to win you a popularity contest. The very last question that I want to ask the man born blind, it's a question that I ask anytime I'm close to a pool. How's the water? The pool of Siloam is the pool that Jesus sends this man to to wash the mud off of his eyes. It was affiliated with the temple in Jerusalem. It was a mikveh, or a pool for ritual cleansing. Jesus puts mud on his eyes. He sends him to Siloam to wash. And the man actually doesn't see Jesus until the very end of the story when he declares him to be Lord. The name Siloam means sent. And so as Jesus was sent by the Father, so this man I've called him Adam, but we could probably put any one of our names on him, is sent. Confirmation that we will celebrate at 930. It's a celebration, but it's not a celebration of arriving at a destination. It is instead a celebration of ascending on, a celebration of a journey that's about to begin. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote, Don't just be a Christian. Take all of your life to become a Christian. Choose again and again with each new day to be a real person in relation to a living God. 
Each one of us is sent. Another big thinker, Fred Frederick Beekner, wrote, A Christian is one who is on the way, though not necessarily very far along it, and who has at least some dim or half-baked idea of who to thank. And so today, I think it's important to encourage the Compermans to thank those who got them to this point in confirmation this year. I'm going to ask them to thank their teachers. I'm going to ask them to thank their parents. I'm going to ask them to thank their senior pastor. But most importantly, I'm going to encourage them every day to thank their Savior, who will send them and sends us on an adventure and grants us the sight to see the adventure.